If you would turn to Second Peter chapter 1. Are you glad you're here? I hope that you're glad that you're here. All right. All right. So we are looking at, uh, starting today, looking at this second leader, this second letter um, that the leader, Peter, I'll, I'll get both of those in there, uh, wrote to the same audience um, as he did in his first letter. And there are three main focuses that you and I will see as we uh, walk through this. One is this, is Peter's going to call the believers he's writing to, to move forward to move onward and to live biblically in the midst of much false teaching that was going on in the day. Secondly, there's going to be a call through this to anticipate, mainly in chapter 3, the second coming of Jesus. Knowing that Jesus is coming, there was a lot of people at the end of the first century, or really, I guess, in the third part of the first century, that were already scoffing at Christians saying, you guys keep saying Jesus is coming back. Where is he? When's he coming back? And so they were attacking the church in regard to the second coming. And so, uh, so he's going to talk about how do, we, how do we move forward in the midst of scoffers and how do we move forward as we wait. And all through uh, these three chapters of Second Peter, a main emphasis that he's going to talk about over and over is he's going to talk about the critical nature of knowing God. 16 different times in these three chapters, a form of the word knowing God, knowing the Scripture, is mentioned there. And it becomes the predominant theme of Second Peter. And so, um, as I was prepping for this and kind of looking through things, I was, went to the internet and was just kind of thinking about stuff. And, and uh, I saw a logo, and Carl, if you would put that up there for us, if you put the logo up there. Um, this is going to be our logo um, for the series. And I began to think about just uh, in the prep uh, for this about what was it, what is it like to be a believer in a culture today that mocks God, that mocks what we believe in, and how do we navigate and move forward? And I, I saw this, and it, and it kind of encapsulated for me what we're talking about here. I think this Christian life is an adventure. I hope you do too. It is joyous to walk with God. And so sometimes um, I've never walked above a city. I don't think I probably ever will. I'm not planning on that. But I love the picture of this guy who's walking, watch this, a narrow path. It's a narrow way. How do we navigate that? Well, we walk and, and walk with God and walking with God on the narrow way elevates us not to the glorification of ourselves, but elevates us to a place to have a perspective to look at what's going on around us. And here's this guy walking on the high wire, an adventure, walking the narrow way, able to see what is happening and taking place and having a biblical perspective of the things that are around us. So we believe that Peter is truly the author of this letter as well as the first one. He identifies himself in that way. If you look, you're at Second Peter, hopefully. Um, look at verse 1 just for a moment. Uh, Simon Peter a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Go to chapter 3 of Second Peter, just for a moment. And uh, verse 1, here's what he writes. He says, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So we believe that Peter was the author of the first letter. He affirms here in the second letter that he is the author of it as well. He likely wrote this sometime in AD 67. Based on what we can kind of put together from history and some of the early church fathers, uh, Peter and Paul were both imprisoned in Rome about the same time, probably uh, died um, probably about six to seven months from one another. Uh, Peter most likely wrote this second letter from Rome. Uh, first letter, he, there was a guy connected with him called Eusebius. Uh, who m most likely penned, he didn't write it, but he was the writer, as you know, Peter shared, Eusebius wrote things out. The Greek is very different from First Peter and Second Peter. So there's been, for a long time, a lot of attacks of Second Peter as if Peter didn't write it. But most likely, um, Eusebius, who had probably had a better grasp of the Greek, because Peter grew up, as you know, in Galilee as a fisherman. He wasn't an educated man. 
So Eusebius likely was that, and so the Greek is different. So most likely, Peter, probably from prison in Rome, with his own hand, literally wrote this one. And so the Greek is a little bit different, um, uh, but I believe um, his history records for us and many of the early church fathers in the first, second, and third century. It was known in the early church that Peter was the author of this. So he likely wrote this in AD 67 because in AD 68 he was crucified upside down in Rome, uh, church tradition tells us. So this is kind of basically his swan song. These are his last words to a group of believers that he had invested much of his life to. So he's writing, based on what we know from 1 Peter chapter 1, he's writing to believers that he has come to know, possibly he has helped start the church, he has discipled these people, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is an Asia, Asia Minor. This is what we would know as modern-day Turkey. And so he's writing to the same group of people who are living in those places. The predominant theme that we will see as we walk through Second Peter is this, is he wants us to know the truth of God for this reason. A lot had changed from the time he wrote the first letter, which was probably about two to three years before the second letter. First letter, he wrote to them, if you remember First Peter, the dominant word that was all through First Peter, all five chapters, was the word suffering. So he's writing to Christians who have had to flee because of the persecution under Nero. Now, two to three years later, after the first letter, everything had changed for these believers. The second letter, he's not going to write anything about suffering. He's going to write this. There were false teachers that had come into the church and were teaching things that were drawing believers away. So he's going to write a lot about calling us to know the God of the Scripture. Not the God of whoever's the most popular person. Not the God of the Gnostics. And we'll talk about that here in a moment because that was what was happening and taking place. So he's going to call the church to know God in the Scripture because that's the only way you can discern what's being said by someone else is to see, does this line up with what the Scripture teaches? So look with me now, Second Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 2. He's going he's gonna to mention this here, and I just want to point this out because here's the main emphasis and just show you. So Second Peter 1, 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, uh, and of Jesus our Lord. Now go to chapter 3 just for a moment and look at the very last words that he writes. So first part, first thing he says, knowledge, got to know Jesus. Last thing he says in letter is 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So second thing I want to talk about, so that's just kind of a summary of kind of where we're going to go in the days ahead um, as we walk through this verse by verse and word by word. The second thing I want to talk about is um, basically connected to this theme. Peter is calling these believers to grow, not to stay static, not to just remain. And that's kind of the case the way that it is for us. We are either growing or we are sliding. Um, sometimes sometimes it feels like we're just standing still, but sometimes I think in the battle we're standing still, but I think that's progress because sometimes you just... There's a stop and there's a battle. There's a wrestling that happens there. And so, so Peter is calling these believers away from the spiritual slide that goes to untruth. And he's calling them to biblical truth to know Jesus in the Scripture. Now, this is not anything new. We experience it today. We could, we could go home today. And uh, three weeks ago when I was in the hospital, I had Christian TV because I wasn't here with you. Um, I was watching church TV on Sunday morning in the hospital, and there's craziness that's spoken from platforms all over America that has little to do with the gospel. It has a lot to do with self-motivation. Christian self-motivation does not save anyone. The gospel saves. And so I watched all kinds of things, got my blood pressure up, watching some of those things on television uh, that morning. But here is the reality. From the first century to the 21st century, nothing has changed. The church for 2,000 years has been battling the teaching that is unbiblical and keeping it out of the church so that we can know who the biblical Jesus is and we can walk in faithful truth. This is, listen to me folks, 
This is the greatest danger to the church today. Somebody might say, well, I think persecution is the greatest danger for the church. No, if you look throughout history, persecution has always served to purify the church. It is false teaching and unbiblical teaching that has caused such devastation to lives, to marriages, to relationships, and to churches. And so Peter's going to call us here to aim at growing in biblical truth. To not find ourselves sliding away from God, but, but to aim at it. That this is a, a purposeful thing that we are doing. I want to know what the scripture has to say about Jesus. And so Peter's going to chapter 2. We will deal just a tremendous amount uh, in regard to false teaching and what's going on. And we will see there's a lot of revel, revel, re, relevance to where we live um, today. So this pressure from within the church is not anything new. My greatest fear has never been the pressure from without. It's been what takes place within because that is devastating. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20 and on his way uh, they land and he sends some people to go get the Ephesian elders and he loved this church in Ephesus and you can kind of see his heart for Ephesus as he writes the six chapters to this church and he meets with the elders and his last words to them were this listen to this this is Acts 20 verse 28 and following He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Care for the church of God. Here's why he says, which he, God, Christ, obtained with his own blood. And then Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not don't want to be a part of you and are going to persecute you. There's going to be fierce wolves that are going to come in among you. And their aim is, Paul says, not sparing the flock. And listen to what he says in verse 30. And from among your own selves, from among your church, from among those that you've been doing life with for 10 years now, 8 years now, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw disciples after them. So, so today is the same thing that Paul's saying to the Ephesian elders, that Peter's writing to believers in Asia Minor, and he's saying this, we have got to know the truth of God, because if you do not, then you and I can drift and just buy whatever's out there. And I've said this before, and I want to say it again this morning. Just because something is on the top 20 list, at the Christian bookstore doesn't mean that you ought to read it. Are you with me? There's a lot of stuff out there we shouldn't read. I look at all that stuff because I want to know what's happening and what's being taught. You and I, the call is this. This is what we need. We don't need a book by me. We don't need all this other stuff. They can be helpful. But what we need more than anything else is to know the Jesus of the Scripture. And that's what's critical, and so Peter is going to call us to that. One other thing connected to the seriousness and the the call to spiritual growth and to avoid the spiritual slide is, I think, what is in Peter's heart. Look with me in verse 13 just for a moment of chapter 1. Here's what Peter says. He says, And I think it right, as long as I am in this body... To stir you up by way of reminder. Look at verse 14. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So what's Peter sensing? What does he, what does he know it's coming? I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Now we know this already. If you remember, Peter denied the Lord three times. Jesus is resurrected. He told the disciples to go and he would meet them. Peter's fishing. Um, several of them are on the boat. Jesus shows up. Friends, have you caught anything? We hadn't caught anything. Hey, throw your net out. They catch all these fish. John tells Peter, that's the Lord on the shore. And Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to shore. And when everybody gets there, Peter's sitting at the fire and they eat. And then Jesus and Peter have a conversation that's pretty one-sided. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And he brings this restoration into Peter's heart. And then there's this conversation, and it says this. 
Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted to. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another's going to dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John writes in his gospel in parentheses, he said, this he said to show about what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. So here's Peter writing to these believers, and he's known this day's coming. He's going he's gonna to die for his faith. He's going to be a martyr. And now he's in prison. He's writing to these believers one last time. And he writes in verse, there in chapter 1, he says, okay, I, I recognize the putting off my body has come. And the time has come, and I want you to know one more critical thing to navigate and push onward to know Jesus more in the world. So I think there's a sense of urgency that's connected to this. Now, I've got to deal with this, and so hang with me. How's everybody doing so far? Doing good? Doing good? All right. How you doing, Trace? You good? All right, I got to kind of give you a synopsis of why Peter's writing this. And what was going on in the first century. And here's why. There's nothing new under the sun, Solomon said. So what took place a long time ago takes place today. And so Peter's writing and addressing. John writes and addresses it as well. A group of people called the Gnostics. You may have heard that before. Those that were Gnostics uh, had a belief that was called Gnosticism. And here's what the Gnostics, greatly influenced by Hellenistic Uh, Greek thinking, and this is what they said. That when the world was created, the Most High God didn't create the world, but a lesser God created the world. And this lesser God, when He created the world, created it with imperfections. So that when mankind was made and lived here, um, there was heartache, there was brokenness, there was disillusionment, there was broken marriages, there was death, there was pain. Because the Most High God didn't create this. He had somebody else do it. And so the Gnostics claimed this, that the body was bad. There wasn't anything about the body that was good. It could not be redeemed. But the mind was key. Do you all remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul gets to Athens. And he goes to a place called the Areopagus or Mars Hill. And there's this group of people there. And it says that they gathered every day to hear whatever the latest thinking was and people would teach and they would they would speak and so the Greeks valued the mind so much about knowledge 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 and if I know enough and I can reason enough then I can save myself so here's what here's what happened this thinking body's bad spirit is good so the Gnostics taught do whatever you want to with the body if you want to engage in sexual immorality, you want to get drunk, you want to, you want to murder, you want to lie, it doesn't matter because the body is not good, the soul is good, and, the, and so, so keep that separate. And so they thought through the mind you could reason your way to a place of salvation. This teaching, does that sound crazy to you, was drifting into the church. So there were teachers in the first century that were coming into the church that Peter and Paul had established, and they were saying, hey, during the week, do whatever you want to do sexually, and come to church, and we'll glorify God, because it doesn't matter what the body does, it just matters that our spirit and our mind is, being, is knowing more and growing more, and, and, and through knowledge, we can get to a place of salvation. Well, you and I know this. Watch this. This teaching again, drifting into the church. If a lesser God made the world imperfect, then you know what that means about us? Then, then the problems in our life really aren't our fault. They're because this lesser God made the world this way, and I'm this way because a lesser God made the world imperfect. We know the Bible teaches us what's the greatest problem you and I have. It's not other people. It's us. It's our heart. It's the hearts that's deceitful. And so, in a sense, there's a blaming of God with Gnosticism because the Most High should have created this, the Gnostic, and so the Most High had a lesser God do it, and so it also kind of gets us off the hook. It's not my fault that I'm sinful because I was born into a world that is broken, and it makes Gnosticism 
makes a mockery of the cross, makes a mockery of the blood of Jesus. And again, this teaching was drifting into the first century church to where people were being drawn away from the purity of the gospel, from the purity of truth into this. Now watch this. The Gnostics, because the body was bad, guess what they denied? The resurrection. Why in the world would you want your body to be resurrected when the body is evil and all it does is evil? So they denied the resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, and they denied that our bodies will be resurrected one day when we live with God in perfection and glory. So this is what was being taught, had begun to being taught in AD 60, about 65 and on through, and John writes about it, um, just a big teaching that was happening and taking place. See, the Gnostics also taught this. Um, this, this is one of the Gnostic Gospels. There's Gospels called the Gnostic Gospels. Let me share one of these. This is, uh, these are not in the Bible, so don't turn there. Don't look for this. But uh, this is from the Gospel of Thomas 3. And this is what it says. Uh, this is what the Gnostic Jesus said. When you come to know yourselves, you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. So watch this. I, with my mind have got to know me, and once I know me, then I realize I'm a child of God. That's man-centered. It's not God-centered salvation. Then it also says this, but if you will not know yourselves, you will dwell in poverty. In other words, you will dwell in lack of knowing things. I'm just going to touch on this for a moment, then we're going to get into the text. Those very words I hear still all the time today by Christians. In case you think that's not there. And here's what it sounds like. I've got to find myself. And when I find myself, then I'm going to be free. Or it sounds like this. I've just got to, and I hear this. Oh, I cringe when I hear it. When Christians say this. I've got to learn to love myself, and then I will be able to love others. Both of those statements are not biblical. The Bible emphasized this about self. Kill it. Self is your problem. Get the life of Jesus and you get the life of Jesus by surrendering to the life of Jesus and knowing the truth and walking in the truth. So Gnosticism was taking place in AD 66, 68, AD 72. And it's 2019 and the church today is still espousing things I am the answer to rescuing my sinful heart. And I'm here today to say, no, we are not. God's done the work to rescue us, and we want him to do the work. And here's why. We cannot depend on ourselves. Can you depend on yourself? I can't depend on me. I make a mess of my life at times. So I need someone greater than me, greater than my mind, greater than my intellect, Greater than my best moral day, I need someone who's greater and more powerful to rescue me from me. And so, Peter, again, this is present in our day and time today. We could, if we could discern, we could turn. I'm just telling you, I watched it three, three weeks ago in my hospital room. I watched Gnosticism espoused from places that have crosses all up over their building, and it wasn't biblical Christianity. It's just Gnosticism in a new form with lights and speakers and other things in 2019. And so that's why it's critical that this book that was written a long time ago is absolutely relevant to us today. All right, there's the introduction. All right, y'all ready for the sermon now? Okay, you ready? All right. All right, let's look at the text. We're just going to go through verse 3 today because this is full of unbelievable, powerful things. ESV says Simeon Peter. Um, some of the early manuscripts say Simeon Peter or Simon Peter. I'm just going to say Simon Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God in Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called, called us to His own glory and excellence. All right, let's just stop there. Next week, we're going to kind of go back to verse 3. We're going to go, go down to about uh, two more verses. I've got next week's outlined already. You don't want to miss next week's as well. If you haven't enjoyed it so far, it's going to get better. Are y'all ready? Okay. Now, I want you to hear me today. I think pastors say this all the time, but I really do mean it. I'm going to say what other pastors say. I think in the 10 years that I've been here, I think this message this morning is the most important one that I've ever taught. And here's why. I think if we will get it this morning, I think if we'll really get and we'll really hear what Peter's writing here, I think it will transform your life for the rest of your days. I really think it. I, 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 I wholeheartedly believe that. So if you've never listened to me before in 10 years, would you listen this morning? Tad, okay, will you listen to me this morning, Tad? Okay. What Peter shares here in the early part of chapter 1 is incredibly powerful. So let's deal with the signature and the status of what Peter says here. First part of verse 1. He says, Simon Peter. Let me just deal with the two names just for a moment. Simon was his birth name. Parents gave it to him. Jesus met him one day, and what did Jesus change his name to? Peter, Rock, Cephas. So as Peter writes here, he kind of signing the letter that he's writing to these people, and he's identifying himself, and he's, he's saying this, Simon, I'm Simon. I have this name. As a matter of fact, when Jesus talked to Simon a couple of times about Peter's flesh, he used the name, not Peter, he used his birth name, Simon. Here's a couple of them. Luke twenty two thirty one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fall. And when you have turned again, Peter, Simon, strengthen your brothers. And then at breakfast, John 21, 15, and when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So, so as Peter writes this, I, I think he uses the name Simon Peter. He connects both of them because he recognizes that's kind of who I used to be. Kind of connected to my old life. And then he uses the word Peter. That's the name Jesus gave me. I, I love the beauty of this. Watch this. Don't miss this. Sometimes we just, we read that Simon Peter and like, okay, what's the point of all that? I think Peter is communicating this. You know, I used to be something and then Jesus made me this. I used to be a little pebble, but now he's made me the rock. I used to be something, and now look what he has transformed me into. There are a few times Jesus used the word Peter with Peter in a significant way. John 1.42, when he first met him, and he, Andrew, brought him to, uh, to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John, but you shall be called Cephas. You're going to be called Peter. You're going to be the rock. Then in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. You are Peter. You're not going to be who you used to be all the time. You may wrestle with who you used to be, but I'm making you someone new. And I wonder when he wrote those words in his Roman prison cell, did he smile? That's who I used to be, but look what he has done for me. And then he describes his status. Simon Peter is my name. Here's my status. I'm a servant, and I'm an apostle. Now, in our day and time in the Greek, we have, in America, in the West, and particularly in America, we have, we have softened this word servant here from its original meaning. It literally means bond slave. It means slave. We don't want to use it a lot because of the negative reality of what happened uh, in our country in the midst of slavery. But the Peter, Peter's literally using the word, I am a slave to Jesus. Now I want you to watch this because there's incredible beauty and power in this. 
when Peter uses this word, and it's being read to these believers when it got to them, they understood what Peter was saying when he said, I'm a bond slave. I'm a slave to Christ. I'm a servant of Christ. Peter is saying this, and they knew this. It has been estimated in the first century there were more slaves than there were free citizens in the Roman Empire. So when Peter writes these words, everybody understood this because a lot of the people that were reading this and getting this, they were slaves. They were owned by other people, bond slaves connected to them, and they had to do what the master told them to do. Watch this about Peter. Peter's saying this, listen, I want to tell you who I am. I was born Simon, but Jesus made me a rock. He transformed me. And he transformed me in such a way that my identity now is this, is I am owned by Jesus. I'm his slave. And what, what he wants me to do, I'm going to do. Where he tells me to go, I'm going to go. And I'm going to be who he wants me to be. So he sees himself as owned by Jesus and bound to Jesus. It's beautiful. Watch. He doesn't say, I am Pontiff Pope Peter. Bow down, kiss my ring. That's not what he says. Now, the Catholic Church will tell you that, that Peter was the first pope. Peter doesn't acknowledge this at all. He says this, I am a bond slave to Jesus. He's the king. I'm the servant. And I'm bowing. I'm yielding. This is my status. This is who I am. And I want to do everything he wants me to do. And so Peter sees my highest role, my highest reality is that that I want to be a slave to Jesus. And I think there's such depth with that. And you know what the Bible tells us this? Oh, one day it's coming. You know what slaves to Jesus eventually become? They become kings and, and they rule and they reign with Jesus when he establishes his kingdom here on earth in the millennial kingdom. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings of the earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and he made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 1, 5. So Peter recognizes, listen, I'm just connected to Jesus. I'm just going to do what he wants me to do. And then he recognizes himself as apostle, which means he's seen the resurrection of Jesus, seen the resurrected Lord. And apostle means sent one. And I've been sent out. So that's his signature his status, who he understands himself to be. And now you got to hear this. And now he's going to talk about salvation. And he's going to share something about salvation that is incredibly powerful. Look at the next part of verse 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to talk for a moment about salvation security and the source of salvation. So he says this phrase, to those who have obtained a faith. Not attained, but obtained. Y'all see the difference? Okay? Attained means I earned my salvation. I attained it. I attained it. No, we have obtained it, which means this. It has been granted to us, given to us, shared with us. That's the difference. And listen to what he says here. This word obtained in the ESV in the Greek means this. Literally, it just means to share. Um, something that's been given or you get by allotment. Somebody chose to give something. Oh, I could get excited right now. If you know Jesus today, this morning, right now, God and His great sovereignty, He by His choice, gave us salvation. He decided that. He did the work. We could not do it. And so Peter says there, he says, listen, to those who share, who have obtained, have been given by the choice of God to be in a relationship with God. You have been given this, and it's been shared with you. 
Jesus has done this work. And so, so Peter's saying, listen, I want you to get salvation security comes not because you decided something, but because God decided something. And God decided this, that he was going to give us his life. And he would come, Jesus would come, and he would live this life, and he would die for us. And so we get to share in the salvation with Jesus. But what's great about sharing in the salvation is there's a security in the salvation. So Peter says to those, writing, the recipients of the letter, to those who have obtained, not attained, but obtained, listen to what he says here, a faith, you've obtained a faith with equal standing with ours. And I am going to get excited about this. So Peter's just establishing for us, there's not a hierarchy within the church. Everybody comes into the kingdom of God by the same way. The blood of Jesus at the cross. And everybody who shares in this gift of salvation that God gives, we all stand in the same place. You know where we stand? We stand right here. And right here, Everybody has equal standing. Everybody has equal standing. There's not, oh, some of us are kind of higher up here and some of us are really low. And No, everybody, Peter says, has equal standing. Now think about this for a moment. You and I have the same standing in salvation that Abraham has, King David had, the Apostle John had, Martin Luther John Bunyan, Peter, Paul. Peter's saying this. Let me tell you how, how great your salvation is. God has given it to you. You obtained it by allotment. He gave this to you. And there's such a security in that that you have equal standing with everybody else. Equal standing with everybody else. We all stand in the same place equally and we get the righteousness of Jesus that we will talk about in a moment. You see, we are a part of something so big and awesome and grand because it's been given to us by God. And the Romans use this word here, um, speaking about equal standing to those that eventually became citizens in the Roman world. They got all the same rights, even though they weren't born into the Roman world as citizens. Um, once they became a citizen, they got all the benefits and the privileges of that. So watch. <clears throat> I, love, I love reading about the great faith of those. I, I, I'm so impressed of those that lived in the Old Testament that were so faithful. Because they didn't have what we have, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And they were so faithful to walk with God, so many of them, the men and women in the Old Testament. And they had their faith just like ours, was credited to righteousness because they believed that only God can rescue. And they believed in the coming Messiah as we believe in the Messiah who came. So our salvation is the same, and so we all are at the same place. It's at, it's, it's at the same place, and, and there's an equality that is beautiful there and that is great. And so, so watch this. Three things with this. We share in salvation. It is secure for this reason, because as we come in, there's equal standing. We're not fighting for a better place at the cross. Everybody gets to be there, equal standing. And the reason we get equal standing, Peter says here, is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now listen to what that means here. This is one of the most key verses of the New Testament that says, if people were to say, well, I don't believe Jesus is God. Well, Peter says here, our God is Jesus and our Savior is Jesus. Jesus is God. That's what Peter says here. So our source, we get, watch, Jesus hangs on the cross. Whenever it is in our lifetime that we came to know Christ as our Savior, and God opened our eyes, we saw that, even God... None of our salvation we can attribute to ourselves. Are y'all with me? Salvation has to be his work. Because if it's any bit of it's our work, 
Our sinful heart will say, well, I did that. We, we'll point it back to us. So we share in the allotment of salvation. It is secure. We enter by the blood of Jesus. Everybody's on equal standing. And the source of it is the righteousness of Jesus. It's not our righteousness, but his righteousness. Now, I want to talk just for a moment. Get your mind ready. I want to talk about a theology word that the reformers made really, really important. That the church now, since the Reformation in the 1500s, and I want to talk about it again today. The reason our salvation is so secure is because of who secured it. And because of who secured it, not us, Christ, His righteousness, then if you know Him today, you will never not be His. If you're His today, you and I will always be His. And it's a word, watch this, it's a word called imputation. Let's say it together. One, two, three, imputation. Let's say it with all of our hearts. Come on. One, two, three, imputation. This is what imputation means. So scholars use the word imputed righteousness or imputation. And a lot of times it's referred to singular. It's a Latin word that the reformers used that meant, in in Latin it means this, to transfer from one account to somebody else's account. So as Peter uses it here, it carries the idea of just a singular imputation. We get into the kingdom because he has imputed his righteousness to us. But there's something called double imputation. And I'm not going to make you say that. But it's called double imputation. And it's the transfer of two accounts. Watch. Please don't, please don't miss this today. This is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. When Christ hung on the cross, everything that was in our account, everything that was in our account that was sinful, got transferred to his account on the cross. And by the way, that was for all of the sin of the world. All of it. Man's account got transferred to him on the cross. That's why Paul writes, in, first, in 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin made him to be sin for us so that we might become the what? The righteousness of God. Now watch. All of my sin got imputed to him. Here's the second imputation. All of his righteousness got imputed to me. And that's why the cross is so important. That's why a sacrifice had to be made. That's why Peter is saying here, starting off, saying, don't drift into false teaching. Because if you do, you'll lose the wonder and the beauty and the grandness of the cross. That on the cross, everything in our account got transferred into his account. And because he was so righteous and the only satisfactory sacrifice, everything in his account got transferred to us. Double imputation. And that's what Peter's saying here. Listen, the source of our equal standing is this wasn't just one way, but it happened two ways. Ours to his account from his account to our account. And glory to his name today. How great is that? Can you find a love like that out there today? You cannot. There is only one who has loved that way, and it's Jesus. And it's so beautiful. And so, again, just introductory. Peter just shares the depth of this incredible reality. We get to stand equal at the cross with everybody, even the Apostle Peter, because the source of our salvation is not us. It is the righteousness of Jesus. And it brings great hope for us. And you know where the first place 
the church drifts and a Christian drifts always is after we come to know Christ, we think this, that it's Jesus plus something else. We want to add to it. And I'm here to tell you today, there's nothing to add to the glory and the righteousness of Jesus. And then Peter says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the first time he mentions knowledge in this, and he'll mention it 15 other times, is here in verse 2. And I just want to briefly talk about this. Knowing God is absolutely critical for us in our lives. And I believe the more knowledge of God we have, I believe Peter's implication here is the more we know him, the more grace and peace increases in our lives. And the reason is because Jesus is the means of that grace and that peace. Now let me talk about knowledge for a moment here before we move on. The Greek word here, knowledge, means um, precise, perfect knowledge that is worked out by living it out. Let me explain a little further. For some of us, the issue in our life is not, we don't know enough facts about the gospel and enough facts about the Bible. I think we, we know a lot of things, and we may think, well, I, you know, we may look at somebody else and say, well, I don't know as much as them. That's not the point. I think we know. We know stuff. But here's the deal. This word here means this. You don't really know God until you walk with God. So I can, I can know facts. I think I, I, I've had... Carol, I heard you did incredible yesterday morning, and two people that I talked to said, my wife came home, and this is what she said, and when my wife came home, my wife told me the same thing, so evidently, this really stood out to everybody that you said yesterday, and what she said yesterday, and I I wasn't there, so I'm just quoting what I heard, this may be a rumor, but Carol said that when they found out that she had cancer, that she and Larry looked at each other and said, okay, now we're going to have to put to test whether all this stuff that we said we believe, do we really believe it? And as you walk with God in the trial, it doesn't become facts anymore. What does it become? It becomes a part of our life. And it's in becoming a part of our life that it moves from here, which is important, to here. And as these two are connected There is a knowing of God that cannot be known by facts. It's known because it's been tasted, it's been experienced, and it's just real and it's deeper than anything that we know. And that's what Peter's talking about here. And so you may hear today and your life has been marked by, I just got to know a bunch of more facts. No, just live what you know and start walking in it and embrace that reality, and in that you know that he's good. And as you know him and you walk in obedience, he, Peter says, it multiplies grace and peace in our lives. And it is a tragedy, tragedy to have a brain full of facts but have a heart that's cold. And does that mark your life? Oh, no, I know, I know, I know, I know. I got more facts, more facts, more facts, more facts. no. Walk with him. Paul said this in Colossians 3, 3. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You know what that means? We have to live a mining life. Got to dig, dig. On a Tuesday afternoon when your spouse, you just want to punch them in the face. Let's just be honest. If I could hurt you right now, I would. You know, whatever the case may be. And we're, just, we're mad. In that moment, is Jesus real? Can he be real enough to bring transformation? Absolutely. So he says here, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, we're going to close with this. And you got to hear this. Got to hear this. 
this is the thing that if you and I will get it, uh, get all the other stuff I just said, that's really important. But what we're about to look at can happen and happens because he's the source of everything. So look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And I want to close today just in the next few minutes talking about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things, all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through Him, His work, who called us to His own glory and excellence. So listen, in this room this morning, there are a lot of baggage in all of our lives that we have brought into this room this morning. Just heavy hearts, heaviness, stuff sometimes we look at and just wonder, is this ever going to end? Can I get out of this? Will there ever be any freedom? Will I always be this way until I don't breathe again, that I'm just going to struggle with sin and never have victory. I'm going to stay this way, whatever it is. And we could put label after label after label after label. From marriage to sadness to uh, work ethic to addictions, whatever the case is. And I believe in the power of this book. I believe it has been breathed out by God And I believe verse 3. His divine power, not man's power, his divine power, his power is sufficient enough. His divine power is sufficient enough to bring us out of the things that we wrestle with that we think I'll never find freedom from this. And I, I, I have to do this at this moment. I have to point to here again. That if we have come to know Him, watch, all the things we wrestle with that are not of God. Attitude toward our spouse, whatever it is. All of that was transferred from our account to His account. And from His account, it was transferred to our account. And when that transaction happened and took place, the power that took place there, that power, divine power, has come to us not to live our lives enslaved to sin, live our lives enslaved to, I'll never have freedom again. No, that has come to us. It's come to us by His power. His divine power has granted The authority, in other words, that authority has come to us. He has given that to us. He has granted, watch, listen, granted to us all things, all things, not half things, not just ten things I could put on a piece of paper. He has given us all things, everything we need for a successful marriage, everything we need for freedom from our sadness, everything we need for work ethic, everything we need to parent, everything we need to not choose sin anymore, He has granted to us because He's the source of everything and because all of His righteousness has been transferred to our account. It is granted to us all things, everything that we need in two ways. For life, and I think this is a reference to eternal life, that our salvation is secure. And then he says, life and godliness, godliness, sanctification, working out our faith, living here on the earth. 
and you have to ask the question, then why do we live such weak lives? If he is transferred into our account, all of his righteousness, we were dead and now we're alive. Why? Well, some of that is we're just going to wrestle with things. And I think sometimes having moments of maybe that lasts a few months or whatever, but the point is this, and this is coming deep from the tenderness of my heart, even though I'm, I'm pretty loud because I'm passionate about this right now. The cross was about us not being enslaved to things for the rest of our lives. That diminishes the, the beauty and the grandeur of the cross. The cross is about being rescued. And not just being, okay, I'm rescued, but being given things to live life and godliness that we need. Here's what Spurgeon said. Here's, the, here's why we live weak lives. About this text, here's what Spurgeon said. He said, God sends every bird his food, but he doesn't throw it into every bird's nest. So watch this. We have to appropriate what has been given to us. What does that mean? Well, I've got to live it. It's not just facts. I've got to live it. It's been given to me. It's kind of like, <clears throat> I don't know what the richest bank in the world is, and they were to open up the vault, and they were to say to you and I, go in there and get what you want. And if you and I come out with a dime, how stupid are you? And Jesus, through his death, opened up the vault of life and godliness for life here and says, come in, come in. And if you and I don't take it and walk in it, then that, that, that's not God's issue, that's our issue. We're not walking in everything that we have been given. And so we've got, to, we've got to do that. We have all the power that we need now because he has provided everything that we need for life and godliness. And there's this efficiency that comes, he says here, in knowing him. And so he says, we've been given, we've been granted all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, he called us to his glory and his excellence. That's so why Paul said in Philippians 3, he said, I just want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection. Because when I know that, then I know something that is real, that is permanent, that is foundational, and that is lasting. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. So watch this. That transfer, guess what? We got old life crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. And Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. So growing Christians are faithfully walking biblical truth Christians. All right, let's close with this. <clears throat> I'm not a chocolate chip cookie person. You probably are. But I believe what we've talked about here this morning is critical. And I don't have any cookies to share this morning. I went to a monster truck show last night that was pretty awesome, and so I didn't have time to bake chocolate chipless cookies last night um, for us this morning. If you're going to have chocolate chip cookies, what do you have to have to have chocolate chip cookies? Chocolate chips, right? You can have all the other stuff, right? <laughs> and you got cookies, you can bring something out, but you can, you can call it chocolate chip cookies, but mm, it's not. That's a cookie with all the other stuff. Listen to me. It's kind of that way with Christianity. Boy, you can have all the knowledge and talk about the cross and its importance. You can all have all the talk about 
God's love for the world. You can have all the talk about, you can put all the ingredients together, but if you don't talk about that our account got put into his account and his account got put into our account, then you don't have Christianity. That transaction of divine imputation, I think is, if we will understand it, is the most freeing thing to our daily lives because it just reminds us of this. He has already done everything that I need. I just need to agree with it and walk in it. I'll close with this. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all, we've talked about that word all, A-L-L, quite a bit this morning. For all the promises of God are yes and amen, guess where, in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. He is sufficient alone for everything that we need. Is that not transformative if we would walk into that, that reality? That we would get the truth of that. And that's how Peter begins this. And we're going to build layer upon layer, layered cake. I may bring layered cake next week. In First Peter, we did layered cake. So I may bring layered cake next week. <clears throat> He's just going to add multiple layers to all of this as we begin to unfold more in chapter 1 of the beauty of the salvation that has come to us. All right, let's pray.